Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about Hebrews chapters 7 through 13. Now, there are several themes in these chapters. The seventh chapter is kind of a big deal. This is the discussion of the superiority of Christ's priesthood, that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood that existed during all the time period from Moses to the time of Christ. And as Latter-day Saints, we are blessed because we have some restoration texts which have told us more about who Melchizedek is. But if all you have is the Bible, it's pretty tough to kind of understand uh, the arguments that are happening here, especially as they regard to Melchizedek. Another theme in these chapters discusses the importance of faith. This idea of a reciprocal trust that believers have to have in Jesus, and as they do, their faith is strengthened, and they're able to continue on the gospel journey. Along with this idea of faith is the importance that the author is emphasizing on the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. The atonement of Jesus Christ is going to supersede all the things that have been done under the Mosaic system. No borrowing someone else's blood. He provided his own. Absolutely. And there's going to be some warning against apostasy or falling away in these chapters. This is an important thing. As we continue along our gospel journey, the temptation to leave the path never leaves us. If you think about the journey along the path in Nephi's vision or Lehi's vision, as they're walking along the path and they're holding to the rod, the mist of darkness is always there. And so the author of Hebrews, though not referring specifically to that vision, also understands this. And so warns believers to stay on the path. In the 10th chapter of Hebrews, there's a beautiful image about the veil and the invitation for us to have boldness to come into the presence of God. And the author is hearkening back to the idea or the old notion that only the high priest was allowed to come into the presence of God. And because of Christ's perfect atonement, the way is made for everyone. Everyone is invited to come into the presence of God. And so the 10th chapter of Hebrews is a beautiful invitation for believers to have courage. Because of Christ's atonement, it injects us with courage and strength to continue on the path and hope, knowing that he has made a way. The 11th chapter of Hebrews can be called the Heroes of Faith or the Hall of Faith. This chapter in Hebrews presents a list of Old Testament figures who demonstrated great faith in God. And we can kind of see a similar message to Hebrews 11 in Ether 12, where the author goes through a list of many people who exhibited great faith in God. And then in chapter 12, we read about the importance of correction and discipline. As we move along the path, because Heavenly Father loves us, he's going to correct us. And then finally, in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, there's this exhortation to continue in brotherly love and to practice hospitality. And the author emphasizes five important things as we proceed along the path to come to Christ. So that's a brief overview of some of the things that are contained in chapters 7 through 13. 
Now, before we jump into chapter 7, let's go back to last week and do big picture all of the book of Hebrews so you can kind of see the themes that flow throughout the entire epistle. Number one, the author to the epistles, and I'm just going to say Paul. I truly believe that it's Paul. Paul is trying to establish the superiority of Christ. The idea here is that some of these Jewish converts, Christians who came from Judaism, have gone back to the more long-standing tradition of their past. They've left Christ to go back. And Paul's trying to say, you've gone back to something lesser, that the new covenant of Christ, what Christ has provided is better in every way than what you're going back to. You're leaving the greater and going back to the lesser. That's the overall theme. And the reason I think it's so significant today is in our journey into the celestial, sometimes we find ourselves and others going back to an inferior room. Sometimes we go back to the telestial room, or sometimes we go back to the terrestrial room. We can't quite let go of the lesser things. And so that same argument applies to us. Why are you going back to lesser? You need to hold on to the greater. So watch for that in all of the epistle. The second is the let us's. Let us therefore. Because we have a better system, because the new covenant is better, unto whom much is given, much is required. Therefore, we need to step it up. Because we have better, we need to do better. And so you're going to find Paul saying over and over and over again, let us therefore, and then he's going to lay out the behavior that we need to step up. Theme number three is why it's better. This is a beautiful look as to what Jesus is and who the Savior is. We have a better system because we have the Messiah. Not the hope for the Messiah that the law of Moses was, but the actual Messiah. So we get a glimpse as to who he is. We're going to talk about some wonderful things like Jesus is the veil of the temple and what that means in our lives. We're going to talk about a high priest of good things to come. And then number four... It's that coming into the Father's presence. That's going to flow all throughout the epistle to the Hebrews. It's the journey through the temple and into the Father's presence. It's our journey through mortality and into the Father's presence. So we're going to see temple themes. We're going to see the greatness of Jesus and this idea of he's given us a better system. So don't go back. Let's elevate our behavior and be better. So watch for all of those in this second half of Hebrews. Now, let's see what we've already seen. Just brief review of last time. We saw that Jesus was the greatest of the premortal spirits. He's better than the angels. That in premortal life, he stood supreme above everyone else. Therefore, in terms of messengers that have come from heaven, to deliver messages and take part in the Old Testament pageantry of the gospel, Jesus is better. We've also seen that Jesus is better than Moses. In fact, not only is he better than Moses, we also saw that Jesus is better than all of the high priests, all of the earthly high priests. He is the great high priest. Now we move into the priesthood of Jesus is better than the priesthood of Moses. 
And chapter 7 is all about the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood over the Aaronic priesthood. And then this idea of the greatness of Melchizedek as compared to the goodness of Levi and other of the patriarchs. So jumping into verse 1, we talk about Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High. And again, a character that's kind of disappeared from history. It's almost as if someone on purpose edited him out of the Bible and left us with the lesser priesthood, but we need to understand and champion the priesthood of Melchizedek and then the great high priest of Melchizedek, which is Jesus. You know, Bryce, you mentioned him being edited out. I think a big part of the reason why, and this is and this is a theory, we don't really know, but I think a big part of the reason why Melchizedek is edited out of the Old Testament is because after the end of the monarchy, during the second temple period, after the exile, the Jews are not allowed to have kings anymore. They don't have kings. And so we think, or, or many scholars believe, that they went back and edited their texts to reflect their time period. And so in the earliest days of what's called the first temple period from basically from Solomon's time to about 586, the kings were kings and priests. And we read this as Nephi kind of talks about his reign and his ministry. Nephi was a king and a priest, and he functioned in that capacity. And we kind of read some of this in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon offers the dedicatory prayer to the temple, he kind of functions as a king and a priest. And we have another reference to this when David comes with the ark, and he proceeds to the threshing floor of Aruna, and he establishes the ark. And he functions as a king and a priest. In 2 Samuel 6 is, is where we read this, where David takes the ark to the city of David, and that's where he establishes the ark. And this is kind of the beginning of the temple. Now, the temple isn't built in David's lifetime. It's Solomon, his son, who built it. But if you look in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, we read that David wore the ephod, and he brought up the ark, and he established it. Verse 17 says, he brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle. And so we have the tabernacle there, and David is offering burnt offerings in verse 18, and the whole multitude kind of takes part in this. We can kind of read about this in, in the 19th verse. And there's just remnants of this idea of the king's being kings and priests, but I believe that the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible has been edited, and so a lot of that evidence of kings functioning in that capacity were removed. But in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, the king was anointed as a king and a priest. Now, I believe that the queen was anointed as a queen and a priestess, and these two were brought to the altar and in so doing, they were declared sons and daughters of God. And so there's pieces of this reflected in Paul's writings in Hebrews 7, or whoever wrote Hebrews 7. I'm going to kind of go back and forth uh, as I refer to the author of Hebrews. Whoever wrote Hebrews 7 understands this idea. Look at verse 16. Speaking of Melchizedek, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is referring to the kings that lived in antiquity, but it's also specifically, in my opinion, referring to Jesus, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we also read this in verse 3. Speaking of Melchizedek, it says, "...without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." Now, many Jewish commentators wondered, okay, is Melchizedek without father or mother? And we have some really good quotes in the show notes. Go check them out where modern prophets have said, no, it's not that Melchizedek was without father or mother, but it's that the priesthood is without father or mother or genealogical descent. It's the priesthood that abides forever. Now, this is where our placement of JST passages is a disadvantage. Anything longer than nine lines was too big for the footnotes, and so we put it in the appendix. But you've got to go to the appendix and pull out the Joseph Smith translation for Hebrews 7.3, because it's right there in our scriptures. You'll notice the footnote that will lead you to it. But Joseph Smith adds, for this Melchizedek was ordained a priest after the order of the Son of God, which order was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So Joseph made it very clear that Paul was referring to the Melchizedek priesthood not having a mother and a father, not Melchizedek himself. Absolutely. And another point that the author is trying to make in Hebrews 7 is okay, if Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, how is this working out? And the answer, or at least part of the answer that the author gives is verse 9 and 10, that when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14, Levi, who hadn't been born yet, because remember, Levi is the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. So Abraham's paying tithes, but the author says in verse 10 that he, Levi, was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so the argument is essentially that Levi is less than Melchizedek because Levi, or Abraham, is paying tithes to Melchizedek. The Melchizedek order is greater. And so because of this, we read in verse 15, that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, and that's Jesus. Now in chapter 8... Paul's going to hearken back to Jeremiah 31, where Jehovah of the Old Testament says, I'm going to bring a new covenant, not this old covenant. I'm going to bring a new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31. And so what Paul's doing here in chapter 7 is if we're going to have a new covenant, there needs to be a new high priest. And Jesus is the new high priest of the new covenant. And that's why he didn't come from Levi. He didn't flow out of the old system. He was from Judah, and out of Judah rose no Aaronic priesthood high priest. But Jesus came out of Judah after the similitude of Melchizedek, who is the new high priest. So do you see how that theme just is flowing, that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, the Melchizedek system is greater than the Levitical system, and the high priest that came out of the Melchizedek system. The great high priest that arose with the new covenant is greater than any of the old high priests that came out of the Levitical system. That's the idea here. And while we're on it, what does it mean for Latter-day Saints? This is not just that the new covenant 
is better than the old covenant, neener, neener, neener. There's a hidden message in this chapter to all Latter-day Saints with the reference of Melchizedek. I want to go back to verse 4. The wording in verse 4 is too similar to Alma 13 to not make a significant connection here. After quoting this king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, whose priesthood was without beginning or end, the text then says in verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Now turn to Alma chapter 13. Now, what is it that made Melchizedek so great? It's not just that his priesthood is superior to the lesser priesthood of the Levitical system. It's that Melchizedek did something with that priesthood that is great. What Melchizedek did in Salem is an example of all Melchizedek priesthood systems and what they're supposed to do. See, you and I sit back and think, oh, Salem, what a wonderful place. It's a place of peace. Notice the end of verse 2, that he was king of Salem, which is king of peace. So Salem was a very peaceful place. But that was before Melchizedek took over. Turning to the Book of Mormon and to some lost pieces of the puzzle, Alma chapter 13. Now, it's significant that it comes in Alma 13, because Alma is in Ammoniah. Do you see the connection here? Alma is in a very wicked city, and he brings up Melchizedek. And the reason for that is that's exactly what Melchizedek did. In Alma chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Now this Melchizedek was a king over the land of Salem. His people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Salem was a horribly wicked place. They had all gone astray and were full of all manner of wickedness, like Ammoniah. And then Alma says, But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of the high priesthood according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his day. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace, for he was the King of Salem. Now, verse 19, see if this sounds familiar. And think Hebrews 7, verse 4. Now, there were many before him, and also there were many afterwards, but none were greater. Therefore, of him... They have more particularly made mention. Now, why do they apparently keep mentioning Melchizedek? Not to honor and praise him, but to understand the purpose of his priesthood. The purpose of Melchizedek priesthood is to turn wicked Salem into righteous Salem, a city of peace. That's why Melchizedek is spoken of, and that's why he's so great. Now, do you see why Alma's mentioning that here in chapter 13, in the city of Ammoniah? 
we can do in Ammoniah what Melchizedek did in Salem. That's kind of the invitation, isn't it? That's the purpose of this priesthood. And again, it's not just for those who hold offices in this priesthood. It's all those who participate in the covenants of this priesthood. Anyone who's been to the temple and have received ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood is part of this order. You've been initiated into this order, and the purpose of the order is to turn the wicked Salem into the righteous Salem. Now, do you see why that's significant for Latter-day Saints? Let's do one more. Let's turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 107, where the Lord talks about the Melchizedek order. Now, the real name of the priesthood is not Melchizedek. That is not the proper name of the Melchizedek priesthood. It is actually, in verse 3 of 107, the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But to avoid the too frequent repetition of that name of deity, we're not going to call it by its proper title. Now, why do we call it the Melchizedek priesthood? Verse 2 again, because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. That's now three references in three separate scriptures to Melchizedek being so great. The point is that we Latter-day Saints have come to earth in the fullness of the dispensation of times after the apostasy. We have inherited our own Salem, our own Ammoniah, and the purpose of restoring Melchizedek priesthood is to do what Melchizedek did, to turn this city of wickedness, planet of wickedness, into a place of peace. And that's the purpose of Melchizedek ordinances. That's the purpose of holding offices in the Melchizedek priesthood. That's the purpose of temples. We are to do the great work of the great high priest and declare repentance and bring peace to the city of Salem once again. So as you sit down with your family and your class, in addition to teaching that Jesus was superior to the high priest of the Old Testament, or any high priest, in addition to teaching that the Melchizedek system is greater than the Aaronic system, we need to remind them of the mission of Melchizedek. The purpose of having those ordinances is to turn our own modern Salem again into a place of peace. I got to nerd out just for a second. I, I can't help myself. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That statement was given to the kings of Israel in the first temple period. I, I just have to nerd out. This is the Septuagint translation of it. You are a priest into the eternities according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the statement that was given to the kings. That idea that you're a priest into the eternities. We don't have any other kings of Judah called priests, and yet we have Nephi coming out of the first temple period talking about being a king and a priest. Josephus talked about Melchizedek being an actual guy, a real guy that built the first temple. Uh, that's in the Jewish War, Book 6. Josephus describes him as a king and a priest and as a historical person. Another author, Philo, talked about Melchizedek as a righteous king because he executed orthos logos, right reasoning. 
or the right way that he talked about things. The Qumran texts that were discovered at the Dead Sea, they talk about him a couple times, and they always connect it with this idea of liberation. Think about everything Bryce has been talking about. The early Christians read Psalm 110, and they saw Jesus all over the place. And so to them, Jesus was the fulfillment of this. And some early Christians, when they talked about Melchizedek, discussed his deification. Now, I think he's the perfect type for Jesus, but I also agree with what Bryce is saying, that Melchizedek is a type for us, encouraging us to be better. And isn't that the role the king played in the first temple drama, Mike, that he represented himself, Christ, and the people? Yes. And so Melchizedek fit that perfectly. Melchizedek was, in fact, a king of Salem who typified himself, Jesus, as the great high priest, but an invitation for all of us to use the order of the Melchizedek priesthood and do what Melchizedek did, turn a city, a wicked city, into a place of peace. And so I think that fits the temple drama as well. It does. The author in the seventh chapter at the end says this, verse 25, "'Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him.'" seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So clearly we're talking about Jesus here. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So this high priest became us, became mortal, and yet he is higher than the heavens, verse 26, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once when he offered up himself. And so the author makes this distinction. The high priest had to make an offering for himself on the Day of Atonement and then for the people. But Paul here is saying, hey, Jesus didn't have to do that. He made himself an offering for all of us because he is higher than the heavens, holy, harmless, and undefiled. Now that's going to flow into chapter 8. That whole idea is beginning at the end of chapter 7 where Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself first like the priest did and then offer a sacrifice for the people. He just offered himself a sacrifice for the people. Now in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're going to talk about the greatness of the offering that Jesus gave us, the greatness of his new order or his new covenant to the offerings of the Old Testament and the offerings of the lesser priesthood. And Paul's going to make in chapter 8 kind of three arguments that this is a better system. Why are you going back to the lesser when this is better? Argument number one is Jesus's offerings, what he is offering us is better than what the high priest in the Old Testament could offer. His offering is better. And that's verse three. Number two, we'll come back to these details, but number two, the first covenant that was done away was a shadow of heavenly things. So how can you be better or even equal to what you're a shadow of? You've got a shadow versus the actual person. Now, which one's better, the shadow or the person making the shadow? So the law of Moses was a shadow of what Jesus was going to do in his lifetime. That's his second argument, and that's kind of verse 5. 
His third argument is that quotation of Jeremiah. Chapter 8 is going to go back and harp on that quotation from Jeremiah at the time of the destruction of the first temple, after Lehi leaves to America and kind of takes that system with him. But it's going to be destroyed in Jerusalem. The temple's going to be destroyed. Jeremiah powerfully quotes Jehovah as saying, I'm going to send you a new covenant. Paul's idea here in verse 7 is, if there's a new covenant, then that's because the old one had faults in it. So if Jesus is the new covenant, why are you holding on to the one that was full of faults that was replaced? So that's kind of what chapter 8 is, that the offering of the new system, the high priest of the Melchizedek order, is better than anything that was happening in the old system, so why are you going back? Verses 3 and 4 can be kind of difficult in the King James. I'm just going to read an alternate translation to kind of hopefully make this more simple. Verse 3, Now every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. So if he were on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law. You see, one of the major tasks of the Levitical priest was to offer gifts and sacrifices to Jehovah in behalf of a person or the people. We can read about that in Leviticus 1-5. through The archerus, that's the Greek word for high priest, not only oversaw that these tasks were properly done, but could also do them himself. And so in this verse, the idea that it's being expressed is that the purpose of the appointment of the priests is to make sacrificial offerings for the people. And in this case, Christ's atonement held no exception. His offering was also for the people. And so that can be kind of difficult to read in the King James, but the author says that this is a shadow of heavenly things. That's in verse 5. Now, the reference that Bryce mentioned in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, does come to us from Jeremiah 31, as he stated. If you go to Jeremiah 31, this is what it says in verse 31, hearkening back to the time period right during the time period of the destruction. If you remember, Jeremiah lived during that time period. He talked and and prophesied before and during the destruction, and then many of the exiles leave to Babylon, and many leave to Egypt. And some of the exiles that go to Egypt take Jeremiah with them. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, we read the following, "'Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah.'" Now, what's important to me in this verse is Israel's in the rearview window, Israel has been scattered way before Jeremiah is even born, over a hundred years before he's born. And yet the Lord is essentially remembering Israel. The house of Israel is not gone from the Lord's mind. They may be scattered and lost to the people on earth, but they're not lost to the Lord. Now we're talking about the lost 10 tribes, the kingdom of Israel, yes, it, not the house of Israel. And they're already gone. They've been scattered for a hundred years at this point. Right, right. The kingdom. And, and when I'm talking about the house, I'm kind of referring to the kingdom. 721 BC, they're scattered. Well, Jeremiah is writing Jeremiah 31 sometime in the time period 
before, during, or right after the destruction of the temple. So we're talking around 600 BC, give or take a few years. And so the Lord remembers who the house of Israel are, the kingdom of Israel, and with the house of Judah. And he's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. And then if you skip down a couple verses in Jeremiah 31, we read in verse 33, I will put my law into their inward parts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then there's a prophecy in verse 34 that the author of Hebrews 8 is going to quote. So I'm going to read the prophecy, then I'm going to read the quotation. Verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 reads, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then if you go to Hebrews 8, verse 11, this is what we read. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, Mike, let me throw one from modern scripture. This is from the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 84, speaking of the coming of Christ, he says, verse 98, until all shall know me who remain, even from the least unto the greatest, and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, and with one voice together sing this new song. That image of seeing eye to eye harkens back to the early Christian prayer circles where they prayed for God's mercy to be with them, for them to enter into God's presence. When I'm thinking seeing eye to eye with my brothers and sisters, that's what I'm thinking of. And this should really help us to envision what really is happening here. To me, when I read this, where we will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. To me, it means he's with us. It kind of brings to my mind the image of the temple where Jesus comes to the temple and they see him and they see eye to eye and they break out into singing and they know who he is. I love this statement made by the prophet Joseph Smith. Speaking of the idea of making your calling and election sure, he said this, This principle ought in its proper place to be taught, for God has not revealed anything to Joseph, but that he will make known unto the twelve, and even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for all shall know him, from the least to the greatest. How is this to be done? It is to be done by the sealing power and the other comforter spoken of, which will be manifest by revelation. So Joseph Smith spoke about this specifically, and to him, the keys to unlock this were tied to the temple. That's why I read section 84, verse 98, that verse Bryce just read. I read that in connection with the temple. I read Hebrews 8, verses 11 through 13 in connection with the temple. In fact, I think there's even a hint to the temple found in verse 13. Look what it says. This is the last verse of Hebrews 8. In that he saith a new covenant he has made the first old. 
Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. I think the author of Hebrews 8 verse 13 is writing right about the time period of the destruction of the temple, probably right around 66 AD, and he's writing to a group of Hebrews, I believe these are Jewish Christians that have been converted to Christianity, and some of them are probably wondering, hey, did I make the right decision? Should I go back to the old system? I think the author is saying, no, the temple is about to be destroyed. It is about to wax old and vanish away. That's why, to me, that verse, to me, is kind of like a breadcrumb to give us a hint as to when the, the letter to the Hebrews was textualized. And after the temple is destroyed, if you think about this, if you take a deep dive into the 613 laws of Torah, so many of them are associated with, okay, this is what we do at the temple. Well, what do you do when the temple's destroyed? Well, if, you t- if you're to talk to Jews today, uh, the Orthodox ones that I've spoken to, they say to me, well, those commandments are no longer in force because we don't have a temple. Well, the author of Hebrews, one of his arguments is this. Jesus, being the great high priest, is asking us to make a new offering, and that offering is us. We are to come to God, and the new system is this, that Jesus, being the great high priest, has made himself the offering, and the old things are vanishing away. And with that also is the temple, meaning the temple of his day. I think that's important. The temple of the day or the time period of this author that system is no more with animal sacrifices. Now, before we leave that idea, again, I want to come to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I very much appreciate that Paul saw, oh, this applies to our day, that Jesus in our day is the new covenant and the Levitical system is the old. But I wonder if the full fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31 is in the times of the restitution of all things, the day in which the fullness of the gospel is restored. Jesus certainly worked out the atonement in his day, but the fullness of the new covenant is, I think, our day. Back in Jeremiah chapter 31, I'm going to read from verse 33, which we're quoting in Hebrews 8. And this verse is in Hebrews 8, but I want to read it in Jeremiah. Going back to verse 31, where he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Then in verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. I believe Jeremiah had in mind the fullness of the gospel in our day when he wrote that, and that we are the new covenant. The restoration is the new covenant, and we must be all that Jeremiah saw. We must have the law written in our inward parts, in our hearts. We must live it because we love it, not because we have to, not because we're the stiff-necked people that needed the lesser law, but we have the law written in our hearts, and we are the ones that need to rise up and be the new covenant that Jeremiah foresaw in his day. Excellent. In chapter 9, 
at least in the first few verses, the author is discussing all the things associated with the tabernacle. So we read about items like the candlestick and the table and the shoe bread and the veil. The outward building. And what he's going to say here is what Jesus built is better than the tabernacle building of the old. And then when you get to the inside, into the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, we read in verse 4 about the Ark of the Covenant, and then Paul gets into, well, what was in the Ark? And so we read that it's overlaid with gold, and that inside of it was a pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, or the Ten Commandments. If you've ever seen Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, when he comes down with those two uh, pieces of stone that have the Ten Commandments, those are the stone tables. And then over it, over the ark, are the cherubim and their glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was a description of the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And then the author says, of which we cannot now speak particularly. He just drops this, hey, I'm not going to talk about what's going on with the cherubim on top of the mercy seat, but then he goes on. Now, before we leave verse 5, I just want to reference this idea that at least for some time before the Savior, that the cherubim that were on top of the Ark were in an embrace. And there's one author that's spoken about this extensively. His name is Eugene Siech, and he wrote a book called A Great Mystery. And in that book, he shares this insight. He writes, Christ and the church were united in marriage. We read about this in Romans 7 and Matthew 25 and 2 Corinthians 11. There's lots of places, Ephesians 5. Since Christ replaced Yahweh as Israel's husband and the church replaced Israel as his bride, the symbolism of the embracing cherubim must also have been applied to them. Perhaps they're symbols for each other. He continues, this helps to explain why Paul could speak of Adam's marriage to Eve, Christ's marriage to the church, and man's marriage to a wife as forms of the same great mystery. That's Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. For all who follow the same heavenly pattern and all become equivalent through their common denominator, the symbolism of the embracing cherubim. This is why the temple mystery in Hebrews 9 verse 5 was presided over by the symbols or the statues in the Holy of Holies, these two cherubim, these two divine beings, and why the church fathers, the early church fathers in Christianity, would continue to apply their meanings to the wedding of Christ and the church. But perhaps most illuminating of all is the way in which the entire New Testament culminates in a heavenly vision of the Feast of Tabernacles and a revelation of the sacred marriage, which is taking place behind the open veil. Now, there's a lot more that he says in his book, but essentially, one of his arguments is this, that there's a golden thread woven throughout the New Testament, but it really has its beginnings in the first temple period, when the king and queen would be ritually married, that would be a symbol of the unification between the church and God, or the house of Israel and Yahweh, or the church and Christ. And that golden thread continues throughout the New Testament in multiple places in Paul's writings. Often he refers to it as a mystery. And then later when we read the book of Revelation, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Christ. And he comes at the marriage supper as the bridegroom. How many times have we heard this idea, right? That the bridegroom's coming, 
and the virgins, the holy ones, or the bride, is the church. And so this image of a marriage could be physically represented by the embracing cherubim in the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all. And so perhaps there's a lot going on in verse 5 where the author says, I can't really speak more particularly about this, but then I'm adding my Mike Day Midrash here. I think you could add to verse 5 that there's an invitation for us to consider the symbolism of marriage as coming into God's presence and being co-creators with him in the order of the priesthood and also as those who follow right reasoning, orthologos, or right rule, Melchizedek, being creators or being like unto God. I think that there's essentially that invitation for us to consider this. But like I said, the author doesn't say this. The author just says, hey, I'm not going to speak any more about this. But if you read all of Paul's writings, whenever he's talking about marriage, he seems to be dropping these breadcrumbs all over the place. And then at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we have the finale where the bridegroom comes and everything is put back. Now, before we leave that, I love in verse 4 what was in the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament tabernacle. Inside that Ark was the pot of manna, the Word of God, Aaron's rod that budded, the symbol of the prophet and his authority, the servant of God, and the tables of the covenant, the law of God. So what will lead you into the Father's presence? the Word of God, the prophets, seers, and revelators who are the servants of God, and the commandments, which are the law of God. And that's what was held inside that ark. That's beautiful symbolism that we can apply today is if I want to get into the Father's presence, I read the scriptures and follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost. There's the Word of God. I follow the prophets, seers, and revelators who are the servants of God and I obey the commandments, which is the law of God. Kind of a cool little connection, because that's what was sitting inside the Ark of the Covenant. But now Paul, in presenting that Jesus is this great high priest, and that the law of Moses was a shadow, I love that phrase in chapter 10. He's going to begin with the fact that the law was a shadow of good things to come. As Paul continues back in chapter 9, gives Jesus what is one of perhaps my favorite titles, that Jesus in verse 11, Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come. Now, allow me to take one brief moment and point out how the Nephites saw the law of Moses. Let's start in 2 Nephi chapter 11, verse 4, that Nephi delighted in proving unto his people the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given. The law of Moses proved that Jesus was coming. In 2 Nephi 25, verse 24, Nephi writes, Notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness in Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. Nephi saw in the law a pointing forward to Christ. Jerem chapter 1, verse 11, teaching the law of Moses, now he's going to explain why was the law given persuading them to look forward unto the Messiah. 
and believe in him to come as though he already was. They saw in the law of Moses a persuasion to look forward to Christ. The angel says to King Benjamin in Mosiah 3.15 that the law of Moses availeth nothing except through the atonement. And then Abinadi says to the wicked priests of Noah in Mosiah chapter 13, verse 27, he says, look, we keep the law of Moses right now, but the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. Why? Because there's an atonement. Now in verse 30, why was the law given? Therefore, there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day to keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards them. So why did they perform the Old Testament rituals? It reminded them of Christ and that he was coming. And then in Mosiah chapter 16, verse 14, it uses the phrase that Paul's going to say to the Hebrews, that the law of Moses was a shadow of things to come. Alma chapter 25, verses 15 and 16, that it was a type of his coming that strengthened their faith. And then I love this one from Amulek to the Zoramites in Alma chapter 34, verse 14, he says that every wit of the law pointed to that last and great sacrifice. I think this is evidence clearly that the law of Moses that you and I get in the Bible is not the fullness of the law of Moses. Because to the Book of Mormon prophets, every wit of the law of Moses pointed them to that great and last sacrifice of Christ. They saw Jesus in the law of Moses. So now back to Hebrews, Paul is pointing to them to say, hey, if Jesus is the thing that they all looked forward to, then why are you going back to a lesser system that pointed you to Jesus in the first place? But I hear him saying to the Latter-day Saints, I don't think that we're going back to the law of Moses, but sometimes we let go of Jesus because we don't see the things that he's bringing. We, of all people, should understand that we have an high priest of good things to come. And if today is a day of challenge... Hold on to the hope that he is going to bring good things. The gospel that we have today is a promise that good things are coming. Let me illustrate with one of my absolute favorite stories, and I'll never forget it, because I was a very young father starting a career in a land far away from where I was raised and where my family was and mom and dad. I can very much appreciate this story. Elder Holland told the following story in October Conference 1999. He said, 30 years ago last month, a little family set out to cross the United States to attend graduate school. No money, an old car, every earthly possession they owned packed into less than half the space of the smallest U-Haul trailer available. Bidding their apprehensive parents farewell, they drove exactly 34 miles up the highway, at which point their beleaguered car erupted. Pulling off the freeway onto a frontage road, 
The young father surveyed the steam, matched it with his own, then left his trusting wife and two innocent children, the youngest just three months old, to wait in the car while he walked the three miles or so to the southern Utah metropolis of Canaraville. Population then, I suppose, 65. Some water was secured at the edge of town, and a very kind citizen offered a drive back to the stranded family. The car was attended to and slowly, very slowly, driven back to St. George for inspection, U-Haul trailer and all. After more than two hours of checking and rechecking, no immediate problem could be detected. So once again, the journey was begun. In exactly the same amount of elapsed time, at exactly the same location on that highway, with exactly the same pyrotechnics from under the hood, the car exploded again. It could not have been 15 feet from the earlier collapse, probably not five feet from it. Obviously, the most precise laws of automotive physics were at work. Now feeling more foolish than angry, the chagrined young father once again left his trusting loved ones and started the long walk for help once again. This time the man providing the water said, either you or that fellow who looks just like you ought to get a new radiator for that car. For the second time, a kind neighbor offered a lift back to the same automobile and its anxious little occupants. He didn't know whether to laugh or to cry at the plight of this young family. How far have you come? he asked. Thirty-four miles, I answered. How much further do you have to go? Twenty-six hundred miles, I said. Well, you might make that trip, and your wife and those two little kitties might make that trip, but none of you are going to make it in that car. He proved to be prophetic on all counts. Just two weeks ago this weekend, I drove by that exact spot where the freeway turnoff leads to a frontage road just three miles or so west of Canaraville, Utah. That same beautiful and loyal wife, my dearest friend and greatest supporter for all these years, was curled up asleep in the seat beside me. The two children in the story and the little brother who later joined them have long since grown up and served missions, married perfectly, and are now raising children of their own. The automobile we were driving this time was modest but very pleasant and very safe. In fact, except for me and my lovely Pat situated so peacefully at my side, nothing of that moment two weeks ago was even remotely like the distressing circumstances of three decades earlier. Yet in my mind's eye, for just an instant, I thought perhaps I saw on that side road an old car with a devoted young wife and two little children making the best of a bad situation there. Just ahead of them, I imagined that I saw a young fellow walking toward Canaraville with plenty of distance still ahead of him. His shoulders seemed to be slumping a little bit, the weight of a young father's fear evident in his pace. In that imaginary instant, I couldn't help calling out to him. Don't you give up, boy. Don't you quit. You keep walking. You keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead. A lot of it. 30 years of it now and still counting. You keep your chin up. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things 
to come. If we are going to be the people we need to be, we must believe in an high priest of good things to come. Hebrews 9.11 does have a great message for us. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with men's hands, that is to say, not of this building. And then Paul goes on, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Jesus made it so we can come in to the presence of God. Now, before we leave Hebrews 9, there's an important teaching here. Verse 16 of Hebrews 9 reads, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, in this instance, we're talking about a testament, meaning a will. In legal usage, a testator is the one who leaves a valid will or a testament at his death. The will or the testament is the written document wherein the testator provides for the disposition of his property or his mansion or his stuff, whatever it is. So as used in the gospel sense, a testament is a covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant or testament, that is, of the gospel which came to replace the law of Moses. So in these verses, Hebrews 9 and 16, the author seems to be stressing this important idea that Christ had to die to bring salvation, and the testament or the covenant of salvation came into effect or became a force because of the atonement that was worked out in connection with that death. Christ is the testator, and so his gift, as would be true of any testator, cannot be inherited until his death. Christ died that salvation may come, and without his death, He could not have willed either immortality or eternal life to men. And so in in this instance, I think that the author is clearly referring to Jesus. And Jesus had to die so that the covenant could be a force. Now, it's difficult for me to continue without at least mentioning Joseph Smith and his martyrdom. And so in his words, Joseph said this. He said, I am tired. I've been mobbed. I have suffered so much. Some of the brethren think that they can carry this work out better than I can, far better. I have asked the Lord to take me out of this world. I have stood all that I can. I have to seal my testimony to this generation with my blood. I have to do it, for this work will never progress until I am gone. For the testimony is of no force until the testator is dead. So Joseph is quoting this when he's making these remarks. Joseph continues, People little know who I am when they talk about me, and they never will know until they see me weighed in the balance in the kingdom of God. Then they will know who I am and see me as I am. I dare not tell them, and they do not know me. And then the author continues in Hebrews 9, talking about the Savior and his atonement. One of the things I like in these verses towards the end of the chapter is verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And then in verse 28, it reads, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. A couple ideas in these verses. One is this, that he's coming back. And another one is that his atonement was established from the foundation of the world, from before the creation. This was the agreement. And Jesus's word was gold. When he said he was going to do this, it's as if it already happened. And so we have references to this in the Book of Mormon. One of them is from King Benjamin, where he says, we can live and we can repent as if the atonement has already happened because Jesus's word is gold. When he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, in the 10th chapter, there are some clunky verses in there that in the King James are kind of challenging. If you're interested, go to the show notes and we give some alternate translations, some ways to read those verses that make them more clear. But to me, I really think the gold in chapter 10 is really starting at about verse 18. So I'm just going to start in verse 18, and we're going to look at this and see how this applies to us and how it applies to the audience of this letter here. Verse 18 reads, Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So the author is saying, hey, we need to continue to get together and teach each other. This is what we do as Christians. We get together every Sunday, and we talk about Jesus to strengthen each other. And if you look in these verses, there's an invitation for us to come into God's presence. Now back to the discussion of the high priest on the day of the atonement. According to the way the Bible presents this, on the day of the atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make an offering for the people. The author of Hebrews 10 is saying that we can come into the Holy of Holies, that we can come in through the veil, that is to say his flesh, Jesus' flesh. The word is sarx here in the, in the Greek, the flesh of Jesus, because it was bruised, broken, and torn for us on the cross on Calvary's hill when his flesh was torn and his spirit left his body, we read in the gospel narratives that the veil of the temple was torn. One of the authors says that it was torn from top to bottom. And so because of this, we have a high priest over the house of God, verse 21, who has told us that we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can, quote, have boldness to enter into the holiest. Why? Not because we're good, not because we're great, but because he is. He is inviting us into his presence. And in this sense, the veil could be a symbolism for Jesus on many levels. I think the main level here for our discussion is that as Jesus's body was torn, 
so was the veil torn. And through him, we can come into God's presence. John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's through him that we're able to come into the presence of the Father. Now, that idea that Jesus is the veil, oh, we could just spend hours pondering and thinking about that. I want to point out two modern applications that have great meaning for me. Jesus is the veil. I want you to picture that moment where you stand at the veil and plead your case to God. That's what the Old Testament was full of. The kings and so many people would stand at the veil and plead unto the mercy seat. They would speak to God through the veil. And I want you to ponder in your life, standing at that veil, presenting myself to God. Now, just for one moment, put yourself on the other side. Tell me what God sees in that moment. When he looks at me, he doesn't see me. There's no part of me that the Father sees. God sees the veil. And the symbolism is trying to say that if Jesus is the veil, that means the Father sees me through Christ. And that completely changes his point of view. God sees me through Christ. He does not see me alone. And those are two very different views of me. To see me through the lens of Christ and to see me without the atonement are very different. But when I stand at that veil, Heavenly Father sees me through Jesus. And that's why I get in. It's because I'm standing behind Christ and the Father sees me through him. I think of section 45. This is what Jesus is saying as he stands in front of me before the Father. Jesus said in section 45, verses 3 through 5, listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. So just picture me standing before God and Jesus standing in front of me, saying, Father, Behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name that they may come unto me and have eternal life. That's what he's saying as he stands in front of me. Father, look at my life. Look at my perfect, unblemished life. Now, let them in, because I love them, and I want them in my kingdom. You know, Bryce, it reminds me of this verse, 2 Nephi 2, verse 3, where Lehi says, Wherefore thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore... I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. It's not because of you were great, but it's because, because he is, right? So have confidence. Notice the premise here is that you can have boldness as you enter the holiest. You can walk and approach God with boldness and confidence because I'm standing behind Jesus. Now, the other application is to fully understand the ramifications. 
If I am going into the Father's presence, it is through Christ. And I know we're probably all thinking, well, that means keeping his commandments. Yes, but I cannot fully get into the Father's presence until I am what Christ is. I have to embrace all that he is. I have to think like he thinks and say what he says. Now, I know that's a long journey with a destination that's far ahead, but I think we need to understand that no one comes into the presence of the Father until you become what C.S. Lewis called little Christs. And that means you have become what he is. And we shouldn't be offended by the phrase, uh, little Christs. Uh, A Christ is one who is anointed. So the early Christians, when they got baptized were anointed. They literally were anointed with oil because they were to follow Jesus, to be imitators of him. Now that's the image I would invite you to talk about and ponder this week. How is Jesus like the veil? It's a beautiful insight, and you really only find that in Hebrews. You don't find that idea spelled out in any other scripture. Now the next part of Hebrews chapter 10 is again the warning. We saw this last week. And the warning is, once you commit to follow Jesus, you cannot get back to neutral ground. If you leave Christ, you don't go back to where you were before you joined Christ. That is not possible. And so once again, this is interesting that Paul is going to repeat it in both halves of Hebrews. So the warning is given in verse 29. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified and holy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Or in other words, here's Nephi's words in 1 Nephi nineteen seven and 9. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and the soul, others set it not and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words, they set him at naught, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness in his long-suffering towards the children of men. If you walk away from him once you know him, you don't go back to neutral ground, you go into the darkness, you fight against him, you despise him, you spit on him, you despitefully use him, and in our previous warning from Hebrews, you re-crucify him. And anyone who does that, of how much sorer punishment do you suppose they shall be counted worthy? We kind of read this in section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 3, for of him unto whom much is given, much is required, and he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. We kind of see this warning throughout the Book of Mormon where the Nephites who rebel against the truth once they know it are kind of worse off than those who never did know it. In Hebrews 10, Paul kind of writes in different ways that warning. We read the phrase or the warning to not draw back. 
in verse 38 and 39, to not draw back unto perdition or to not draw back from our faith in verse 38. In verse 35, the author warns, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. That's kind of a difficult verse. I mean, what is that saying exactly? This is what Elder Holland said. He said, in LDS speech, essentially the author is saying this, sure it is tough, before you join the church, while you're trying to join, and after you have joined. That is the way it's always been, Paul said. But don't draw back, he warned. Don't panic. Don't retreat. Don't lose your confidence. Don't forget how you once felt. Don't distrust the experience you had. That tenacity is what saved Moses when the adversary confronted him, and it is what will save you. Face your doubts. Master your fears. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Stay the course and see the beauty of life unfold for you. Trust in that eternal truth. If God has told you something and it is right, if something is indeed true for you, he will provide the way for you to accomplish it. That is true of joining the church. It is true of getting an education, of going on a mission, or of getting married, or of any of a hundred worthy tasks in your young lives. Fighting through darkness and despair and pleading for the light is what opened this dispensation. It is what keeps it going, and it is what will keep you going. I love that quote. That is from a talk that Elder Holland gave at BYU back in 1999 called, Cast Not Away Therefore Your Confidence. I think that's so important, and I think part of this is in connection with the temple ascent. As we come to the presence of God, as we're on the journey, the mist of darkness is just there. It never leaves us. And so we need to assemble ourselves together, verse 25, to endure for a better substance, verse 34, to not cast away our confidence, verse 35, and to understand, verse 38, that the just shall live by faith. That Greek notion of pistis, which is translated as faith or belief, but it's more than a mental assent. It's a reciprocal trust and the symbol for it in the first century in Rome and throughout the Greek culture was the symbol of the handshake. Once again, Peter in the water, reaching out, grasping the Savior's hand as the Savior pulls him out of the watery chaos. That image of two hands clasping, which is on the Salt Lake Temple, is the image of pistis, the image of enduring faith, to not draw back, to have that enduring reciprocal trust. And as we do this, we will come into the presence of God. And with that, enter into the eternities and partake of eternal life and exaltation. Now, this is where chapter headings, again, become a disadvantage, because in our current New Testament, the end of chapter 10 is disconnected from chapter 11, and it shouldn't be. It flows right through it. Now, let me just point out, chapter 10, Jesus is the veil. If you're going to get into the Father's presence, you're going to come through Jesus. And he has given us some very specific tasks to perform as we come through him into the Father's presence. And one of those is to have faith in him. Others on the list are to repent and make covenants and to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But the very first principle of the gospel is faith. So if I'm going to go into the Father's presence through Christ, I must have faith. Now, I love Hebrews because it taught me the two portions of faith that are going to be vital if I'm going to come into the Father's presence. 
And this is why it frustrates me that we break the chapter after 39 and go into chapter 11, verse 1, because it's one continuous thought. Allow me to suggest that faith has two essential components in it, and they're both taught right here beautifully. The first component, he gives second. His point is to not cast Jesus away, don't walk away, which is, I would suggest, the second point of faith. But allow me to present these in our order, not so much in Paul's presentation. Step number one of faith is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, most people would find it startling to define faith as having evidence. Many people would say that faith is the absence of evidence. I don't see the ruins of the Book of Mormon. I can't see evidence that the Nephites actually lived in America. I can't go visit Zarahemla and its ruins. I don't see Nephi's name printed in some archaeological site. I can't prove the existence of the Nephites archaeologically. And so people think, well, that's why you need to have faith is because you don't have evidence. But Paul here says that faith is evidence, evidence of the not seen. And I would suggest that that is step number one. Your faith was born when an unseen power reached out and embraced you. Your faith was born when God manifested himself to you. As the prophet Joseph Smith prepared curriculum for the School of the Prophets, they prepared a series of lectures, lectures on faith. In the second lecture, the prophet discusses how faith comes into the world. And I love this definition. Lecture two, the object of the foregoing quotation is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of a God, that it was by a manifestation of God to man. Your faith was born when God manifested himself to you. I vividly remember the very first layers of my foundation of faith being given to me when I was a second grader at South Jordan Elementary School, seven years old. As a seven-year-old, my mom had gone to California and she brought me home a Super Bowl. And one day at school, we were playing a game with my ball and it bounced out into the field and I lost it. And I was devastated. And as I scoured that field, I was praying desperately to Heavenly Father. I prayed an innocent little prayer. Help me find my Super Bowl. When I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, I was standing above a weed, and I noticed that underneath the weed, there was a little hole or divot. And I moved the weed aside. And at my feet in that hole was my Super Bowl. I found it. I found it the moment I prayed. And I picked up that ball and I said, thank you, Heavenly Father. And as I live, I felt something I will never forget. It was the very first evidence 
of the unseen that I remember. Powerful, moving. I felt him say, you are welcome. I felt an unseen being manifest himself to me. And that day, faith was born. I had evidence. I knew he lived. No one could convince me that there was not a God. I had evidence in an unseen being. And over the years, I have added more and more evidence. Every time God manifests himself to me, it is a layer of evidence. Faith is evidence of things not seen. That's step number one. Put yourself in a position to allow him to manifest himself to you so that you gain evidence. Now, number two, guess what's going to happen? There will come a testing of that faith. Step number two in the words of Paul is to not cast away your confidence. So if step one is to gain evidence, step two is to hold on to that evidence when the storm crashes against you. C.S. Lewis taught it this way, powerfully, beautifully. He said, I used to assume that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on that table and clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke, and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and my emotions. And I'm going to focus on one emotion I think is the key culprit, and that is fear. The battle is between faith and reason on one side, and emotion and fear on the other. I think that's so significant. That statement from C.S. Lewis really changed me. Faith isn't the moment where things don't make sense and I'm asked to believe them anyway. That's not an act of faith. But once it makes sense, it's going to be tested. C.S. Lewis continues, now just the same thing happens about Christianity. I'm not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of evidence is against it. That is not the point at which faith comes in. But supposing a man's reason once decides that the weight of the evidence is for it. I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is some bad news, or he is in trouble, or he's living among a lot of people who do not believe it, and all at once his emotions, his fears, will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment where he wants a woman, and he wants to tell a lie, or he feels very pleased with himself, or he sees a chance of making a little money in a way that is not perfectly fair. Some moment, in fact, at which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. 
Now, faith in the sense at which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your fears. I love that definition. Step number two, faith is the art of holding on to your evidence when your fear comes. Peter on the boat, how much evidence did he have that Jesus had miraculous power? Peter had asked, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. Now, how much evidence led to Peter jumping out of the boat? And when he did, because of that confidence, he landed on solid water. But then he saw the storm boisterous, and he feared. And that's that second part. We cast away our confidence because of our fears. Faith is the art of holding on to that evidence in the darkness. You don't lose your confidence in Christ because there's a storm. You hold on. After Joseph Smith lost the manuscript, oh, that was a storm. Jesus said powerfully, Doctrine and Covenants section 3, verse 5, remember the promises. Faith is holding on to the promises. Those things that have been promised to you by the Spirit and in your patriarchal blessing, they will come. Don't cast away your confidence. Listen to what Paul said, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Every blessing promised to you will come. Just be patient. Don't cast away your confidence and start making foolish decisions because you're sinking into the sea. Paul says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back. And that's kind of what we see in the 11th chapter. This chapter in Hebrews presents a list of Old Testament figures who demonstrated great faith in God, starting with Abel in verse 4, who offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and then to Enoch in a city that was translated that he should not see death, then to Noah, then to Abraham, and then from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, to Sarah herself, she received strength to conceive seed, Paul writes in verse 13, these all died in the faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You see, Abraham was promised the land all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates, and yet that didn't happen in his lifetime. He had to purchase land so that he could bury his wife. He was promised endless seed, and yet for many years had no seed. He was promised priesthood power, 
and he exercised it. But in his life, all the promises were not necessarily all fulfilled, but he did, at least according to Hebrews eleven thirteen, see them afar off. And he realized that this life, this mortal experience, he was a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. But he, verse 16, desired a better country, that is, and heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so when Abraham offered up Isaac in verse 17, as it's discussed, Abraham knew in his mind that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would be able to raise him up from the dead. That's verse 19. So that, at least to me, is a window into Abraham's mindset. We don't have this anywhere in the Genesis account, but in Hebrews eleven nineteen, the author relates that Abraham knew fully well that if he sacrificed his son, Jesus would raise him up from the dead. And then the author continues discussing Joseph in verse 22, and then Moses. And then in the discussion with Moses, we read that Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And then we go through the narrative of Joshua and Judges, starting in verse 30. We read in verse 30 and 31 about the destruction of Jericho and Rechab. And then we get to the author's discussion of the heroes of faith in verse 32, as it relates in the book of Judges. And then we have this verse, verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. We don't know the whole story behind verse 35, and there's a lot going on in regards to women receiving their dead. In her presentation, Women Receive Their Dead, Julie Smith shares that this passage relates to the stories of women in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4, where women receive revelations and great miracles. In her presentation, Julie Smith shares that every canonized story of a raising from the dead that we read in the scriptures, every one of them, has a female witness. For example, the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, and the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, or Jairus' wife in Mark 5, 21-43, or the widow of Nain in Luke 7, 12-15. We also read about Mary and Martha of Bethany in John 11 when Lazarus is raised, and the women at the tomb when Jesus is raised from the dead. We read about that in Mark 16, 1-8. It seems that in every instance where an individual is raised from the dead, we have a woman standing as a witness. And she really draws this out in her presentation. And we linked it in the show notes for those of you that are interested. And then when it discusses others being tortured, not accepting deliverance, perhaps the author of Hebrews 11 is referring to the revolt during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you remember back in 165 BC, when Antiochus took over the Temple Mount, he would kill women if their 
children were being circumcised, or they were teaching their children to live the laws of Moses. And many were killed during this time period. And this is a very traumatic time period in Jewish history. And I believe that the author is referring to these individuals, these others that were tortured, not being delivered but that they could hope for a better resurrection. Joseph Smith is going to render this as a first resurrection. The author seems to be indicating that these women went through traumatic experiences. Many received their dead, and we read about them in the Old Testament and in the New, but also many were not delivered. And I think sometimes in our lives, we have times when we're delivered, and then we have other times when it doesn't work out. But Paul is essentially encouraging us, no matter what happens, stay focused on Jesus. After this verse, we read this. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, the bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. We don't know of anybody in the Old Testament that was sawn asunder. It's not in the canonized texts. But there is this tradition that Isaiah was sawn asunder by his son-in-law, Manasseh, wicked King Manasseh, in the martyrdom of Isaiah, chapter 5, and we've linked this in the show notes, indicates in this traditional text that's not in our canonized scriptures that Isaiah was killed in this manner. And there are some churches, really, really old ones, that have stained glass windows, and in them is an image of Isaiah holding a saw. And so even though it's not in our canonized scriptures, there was a tradition that this is how Isaiah was killed. And I think the author of Hebrews is hearkening back to that tradition And I think another thing he's doing is talking about big picture. We have the good things that happened to people that had faith. But remember, just because they had faith or trust in God, it wasn't always pretty. There were those that were sawn asunder. And this idea that it doesn't always work out does hearken back to these verses on faith in the 10th chapter. Notice what the author says here in Hebrews 10.33. Partly, whilst you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. Uh, That's not the best translation, but essentially what the author is saying here is, hey, you guys were made public reproaches. As following Christ, it's not always easy, and people are going to make fun of you. That's going to happen, but don't cast away your confidence. And remember, even Isaiah had rough days. But the final verse of Hebrews 11 reads as follows, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The Joseph Smith translation reads as follows, God, having provided some better things for them through their sufferings, for without sufferings, they could not be made perfect. And so in conclusion to this entire chapter about the heroes of faith, there seems to be a strong connection between having trust in the promises and going through the mist of darkness, going through the sufferings. When we do that, when we go through those struggles and we make it to the other side, our faith is strengthened. 
And I think that's important because there were a group of Christians in the first few centuries that had expectations that Jesus was coming soon, that the kingdom would be established. Many of them thought in their lifetime. And those things are promises that are heavenly. None of those people in the hall of faith had a pain-free life. In fact, all of them struggled deeply with many things. Going all the way back to the beginning, Abel was martyred. Enoch struggled a long time. He was slow of speech. It was difficult for him to say the message he wanted to say. Noah, Abraham, and his son, all of them had to deal with pain in their life. And so the question comes up, why does God cause pain if I'm trying to be a good person? So as we transition into chapter 12, that seems to be the question. Notice in verse 1, after the cloud of witnesses, he says, let us, here's another one of our let us's, lay aside every weight and sin which doth easily beset us. Let us run the race with patience. Why? Because Jesus in verse 2 is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the purger. He's the refiner. Jesus is here to help us become perfect. And in that process, there's going to be some chastisement. There's going to be some refinement. So now Paul says in verse 5, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why? Because it's a sign of his love and commitment to you. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Verse 7, if ye endure chastening, then God dealeth with you as with sons. That's a hard reality, but it's one we have to take in faith. Among all the things that we hold in faith, that's one of them. That because I am enduring chastening, it is one of the greatest evidences that God loves me. Because if he didn't love me, if he didn't care, he wouldn't chasten me. Now, verse 8, even though it has a challenging word in it, has a deep truth to it. And so verse 8 reads, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye nothoi and not sons. That troubling word in verse 8 is nothoi, and it basically just means those that are illegitimate children. You see, back then, if someone was labeled as an illegitimate child, meaning that they were not born within a marriage, it really was a hurtful insult. Being considered illegitimate had serious consequences. It, it was a lessening of their social status, and it negated any inheritance rights. Fathers back then were really focused on their children that were the legitimate heirs, and they didn't really pay much attention to those children that were uh, not able to receive an inheritance. And so I think what the author is trying to say here is that if we can't handle chastisement, then we're not going to have the inheritance. And so I know verse 8 can be kind of troubling, but if we just understand that that's what we're talking about. We're talking about inheritance, and God wants to give us that inheritance. And so like Bryce is talking about, every one of these people that have faith they have to go through the fire of chastisement. They have to go through the trial. That really is the hero's journey. You don't become the hero if there's no challenge. The Lord repeats that message often in the scriptures. I, here's a few from the Doctrine and Covenants. 
In Doctrine and Covenants section 136, verse 31, while they're at winter quarters with so many challenges behind them, and yet so many challenges in front of them, the Lord says, my people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. One of the reasons why the chastisement is coming is so that we can inherit the kingdom. In another place in the Doctrine and Covenants, right after the Lord tells us where Zion's going to be built, in the very next chapter, he says, he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. You cannot behold with your natural eyes for the present time the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Therefore, verse 9, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of our spirits and live? Now, how many of you at the moment did not understand parental correction? It confused you. It made you angry. Why are you not letting me do this? I don't see a reason why I can't. And we thought our parents to be fools because their correction made no sense. But how many of us lived long enough to see the wisdom in that correction? Oh my goodness, my parents knew what they were talking about, and their correction really was in my best interest. Well, shouldn't we then do the same thing with Heavenly Father? Shouldn't we then realize that the challenges I'm facing, medical, financial, social, whatever they are, the challenges I'm facing are a loving Father who has a plan for me, has a reward for me, is helping me obtain that reward. Now, the reality, verse 11, beautifully stated here. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless, Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That means yield to it, learn from it, grow from it. In the words of the Lord to Joseph Smith, in a very painful experience in Liberty Jail, the Lord said, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. All of this will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness if you are exercised thereby. The only one that can stop you from enjoying that fruit is you. If you resist the chastening, if you refuse to learn from it and yield to it and get better because of it, but if you are exercised thereby, then remember, God is dealing with you as a child not as a stranger. He loves you and he has a reward for you. I really think there is more of this than we realize. I think everyone has it. I think that even if you're super rich, like let's say you're in Hollywood and you just made a blockbuster movie and everybody loves you and you're super handsome and rich, it doesn't mean they're not going to have problems or trials. And I really think that the issue is, okay, how are we going to get through them? And for me, 
I just keep coming back to this verse. This is a statement made by the Savior in John 14. It's in verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And I think that's the key. I think we're all going to go through hard times, but if we have the Lord's peace with us, there's this spirit of reverence or just a spirit of a settled feeling that can help all of us kind of get through these hard times because I don't think it's the gospel that's hard. I don't think it's Christianity that's hard. I think it's mortality. I think mortality is just one of those things where there is no way around it, but the peace offered by the Savior can help the believers to get through it. I think that's the key. Um, And I think, like Bryce, I think what you're talking about, how, okay, well, if I have faith, that means I'm exempt. And the whole point of these verses is, no, that's not the case. We we just got to go through it. But not grudgingly. I, I, I think there's some terminology in the Doctrine and Covenants that fascinates me. If you endure it well, the Lord told Joseph, and he that is faithful in tribulation. And I think it's not just a matter of getting through it grudgingly, it's getting through it well. Now, one of the things that flows out of that discussion, that endure well the challenge, is the way Esau failed. Now, let's be clear. Repentance is very much alive and true in the gospel, but there are some blessings we can never get back because they're lost in time. So don't, in your pain, make the mistake that Esau made. So the very next message is avoid Esau tears. Hebrews 12 talks about this, that Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. That's Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. And it's really hearkening back to the narrative in Genesis 27. And in this story in Genesis 27, we read the story of how Jacob and Esau were twins, and Jacob received the birthright blessing, and Esau did not. Now, Part of that had to do with Mother Rebecca and what the choices she was making, but part of it had to do with Esau's choices and the things that he was doing. And I want to just hearken back to this one verse, and it's verse 38 of Genesis 27. When Esau realizes that he has not acquired the blessing, he makes this statement. He says, hast thou but one blessing, my father, bless me, even me also, O my father, And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Esau, after having made the choices that made it so he could not have the birthright, was just so devastated. And I love how in Hebrews 12, 17, the author writes that he sought the blessing carefully with tears. And an author that I really appreciate has written about this idea. And his name is Mike Wilcox. And he talked about this idea of shedding Esau tears. And essentially, we shed Esau tears when we realize that we have made choices that have put us into a position whereby we have lost blessings. Now, we regret it, and we can still change. We can change our life. We can change our course. But one thing that we cannot change is time. It's difficult to go back and rewrite the story because the story has already been written. 
And one of the illustrations of shedding Esau tears happened to me when my wife and I were first married. We lived in an apartment complex, and one day I was coming down the stairs, heading to my car, and there was a young woman on the stairs, and she was crying. And I took a minute to just chat with her. I had to go to work, but I just had this thought, you know, Mike, you need to sit down and chat with her for a minute. And we had had conversations before, but in this conversation this day, she opened up and shared with me how she had two children, and she was married to an individual who was not Christian. She was raised in the church, but when she was of marriageable age, she decided that her parents were wrong and that this man that she loved was the man that she would want to marry and and have a family with. And even though her parents gave her counsel to marry a Latter-day Saint, she said, Mom, I know what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. It was around Christmas time, and here she was on the stairs crying, and she said through tears to me, I can't teach my kids about Christmas. I can't talk to them about Jesus. You see, the man that I've married has a faith where I cannot talk about Jesus to my children. I cannot teach them about the things that I know that are important to me. And at the time when I dated him, I didn't think it was a big deal. But now that I have children, I realized that I was wrong. Now, I didn't have an answer for her. I just sat and listened. And often in our lives, we make decisions that later we look back and think, why did I make that choice? And yet, I also believe in repentance. I know that repentance works. I know that we can change the course that we're on. The course directions can be changed. But one thing we can't change is that time. Can't make your children little again and reteach them. If we raise our children outside of the faith and then we come back to the faith in our 40s or 50s or 60s and we realize, oh my goodness, I did it wrong. I mean, we can talk to our children and we can exhort them and and urge them to get on the path, but we can't remake the past. That's a difficult thing. And so I think one of the things that Paul is trying to say in Hebrews 12 is this idea that, yeah, it's going to be hard. There's going to be chastening, but don't take the easy path like Esau because we will be receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. And so because of that, let's remember where we're headed and let's not take the easy path. Let's remember that we are going to Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we want to go. I think he's using Esau in his life story as an illustration of those two paths. It's so hard because when Esau was in that moment, I don't care about the birthright. But having the wisdom to say, but will I someday? Will I someday? Should I forego a blessing that someday I will want? It takes an element of maturity, a little bit of forward thinking, and some bravery to, in a moment of uncaring, to be wise enough to say, but will there come a day that I will care? Because I don't want to lose a blessing and then regret it. And so my plea to anyone out there who is in that moment of, I don't care about the blessing today, I would encourage you to take a moment and talk to a future you and say, do you care? Because right now I don't. But if you care, if I'm going to end up wishing I had not lost this blessing, then perhaps I should be more cautious today at not losing it because you're not going to get that time back. 
You can repent and move forward in a different way, but you're not going to get the time lost back. So just a, a, a powerful, sad lesson from others that hopefully will make a difference in our lives. Um, there are some verses in Hebrews 12, quite frankly, that are difficult. Specifically, some of the verses that personally I think are kind of a challenge are verses 18 through 21 and verse 25. So if you're listening to this podcast in the hopes that we talk about some of these difficult passages, and often we do, just note that we can't get to all of them. And so those verses are outlined in the show notes with some commentary, so hopefully that will be helpful. Now we go into verse 22, where Paul writes, But ye are come unto the Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Bryce, what's going on? We need to be careful with this because in this mortal life, it can come across as a secret club. But I think we're familiar with the name of the church being the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I think the variable of when you came to earth would change the ending. I can't imagine the church in the meridian of time was called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I suspect that the church in the millennium is not going to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it's the Church of Jesus Christ of certain time periods. So what then is the name of the church once we get into the celestial kingdom? We will again belong to a church. But what is the name of the church where we are exalted people who've passed the tests of mortality? The name of that church, as given in the scriptures many times, is the church of the firstborn. So I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, striving to become a member of the church of the firstborn which means I will have passed the mortal tests. I will have, because of Jesus, been made perfect, and I will be entered into another church of exalted beings who worship the Savior and have become like him, and that is the church of the firstborn. So, Hang on, everyone, Paul says. The reason for the chastening, the reason for all of this is because we are trying to become the church of the firstborn. So he's holding it out in front of us, not as a secret club that you don't belong to. It's where we're headed. But as a destination. I very much want my membership in this church to lead to membership in that church. So the wording here is, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men, here's how you're going to get there, made perfect. We find the rest of that phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 76, as he's describing the celestial kingdom in verse 69, it says, these are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I think we're very much allowed to add that phrase back in Paul, that if you want entrance, if you want membership in the church of the firstborn, it's going to require yielding and submitting to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. 
and the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things. So all of these things, the chastening, the faith, the coming through the veil, coming to the better, not letting go and not going back to the lesser, has a destination that makes it so worth doing. We are headed to Zion and ultimately into the church of the firstborn. It really can be seen as the temple setting as coming into God's presence. This whole chapter really can be seen liturgically or as the endowment. I mean, look at verse 1. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So we're on the journey. That's what we're doing. We're enduring, verse 3. We are making the paths straight for our feet as we're headed towards Christ. That's verse 13. We need to remember that we have to endure the trials. Remember the the antidikos, the, the tempter or the challenger, the accuser is always there trying to, to get us. That's mortality, but that's also the adversary. So we need to remember Esau and his example, don't be like him. And, and then we focus on the church of the firstborn where we're headed. That's in the third room, the Holy of Holies. That's where the, the Savior is. That's where the just men made perfect are. That's verses 22 through 24. And then it says in verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. That's a really rough translation. I geek out in the show notes on that verse as to what's going on, but big picture, don't refuse the voice of God. At Sinai, God was speaking to them the Israelites, and many of them didn't want to proceed to the top of the mountain. That's the the picture that's happening here. And so what Paul is saying is, don't be like those guys. You keep going. You keep going forward. Why? Verse 28, because we're going to a kingdom which cannot be moved. We're going to God's presence. And so the very last verse, God is a consuming fire. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 4.24. And also 9 verse 3, we're coming into God's presence. And so once again, the temple is in the scriptures. All throughout the New Testament, we read clues, breadcrumbs. Those that have eyes to see can see that this is a journey. We are being invited into God's presence. Now we are entering the concluding chapter of Hebrews. Now, this is evidence to me that Paul wrote Hebrews. This is, for me, the greatest evidence because Paul's pattern is always to end his epistle with very practical, everyday, here's how you do what I'm asking you to do advice. And that's exactly what we find in chapter 13. After all the doctrine he's taught, now it's, okay, therefore what? here's what you need to do to be better. And he kind of gives us a list of five right up front of five things that we need to do. Now, even though they kind of come quickly, I think you should pause this week and ponder them. And Michael and I will just kind of go through these each slowly. First one is in verse one, and it shouldn't surprise you, especially as you've been studying the New Testament, what Jesus did at the Last Supper, what John's gonna do with his epistles next, it always kind of comes down to the essence of living the gospel is love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple. Now, he's not going to talk about how many scriptures you have memorized or how many callings you've held. He's simply going to say, here's how you measure discipleship. 
if ye have love one to another. And I love that we're going to come to that same conclusion. If you want membership in the church of the firstborn, if you want to go through Jesus and into the Father's presence, then the telltale characteristic of you should be let brotherly love continue. So there's our first one. And don't let the brevity in chapter 13 diminish from its significance. This is extremely significant in application. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Paul is encouraging us to have hospitality. Remember the story in Luke 24. As the two disciples were heading on the road to Emmaus, they were actually talking to Jesus, and they didn't even know it. And remember the story in Genesis where Abraham entertains angels from heaven that come representing God with a special message. Abraham, you're going to have a son. And then number three, verse three, remember broken people. Remember those who are suffering. Remember those who are in bonds. In our modern day law, section 42, the Lord has commanded, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy goods. And I think far too often we pay attention to the second half. We pay our tithes, we pay our fast offerings, we make our donations. But it's the first part of that commandment I think we need to emphasize as well. Thou wilt remember the poor. Do you remember when Jesus told Zacchaeus, today I must eat with thee? I must. I think it was a gentle rebuke to everyone else. I must because you didn't. The essence of the gospel covenant is that we mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. When 15 prophets, seers, and revelators put together the proclamation on the family, they included a list of nine principles that make families successful. And one of them is compassion. I must learn to step out of my feelings and step into yours. I will treat you differently if I step out of my emotions and step into yours. Powerful message. And then Verse four, marriage is honorable in all. I think Paul's emphasizing to the Christian community the importance of marriage. And then we have a fifth one in verse five, and, I, and this is a subject that Paul addresses a great deal. Be content. Be content with such things as ye have. The opposite of that is the game we often play when we walk into a room and we look, we survey the room and we notice all the people who have something that I don't have. We quite often play the comparison game. When David slew Goliath, Saul, who had led the army and had been faithful in his position to conquer the foes of Israel, he took it as a negative because the people sang, to David they have ascribed 10,000, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. We often diminish our own accomplishments because we compare it to someone who's done something more. And we often compare our weaknesses to someone else's strengths, and that's an unfair comparison. We ought to be content. Alma said, I do sin in my wish 
for I ought to be content with the things that the Lord hath allotted unto me. Now, change what I can change, but there's many things that I just, I need to be content. I'm grateful for the life that I have, Lord, and I'm not going to play the silly game of wishing I had someone else's life. You have the life that God knows you need in order to get back to his presence. I think perhaps another theme in this last chapter is this idea of submitting to the rulers in the church. Look in verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you. Look in verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Go to verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you. I mean, throughout these passages, it seems to me that the author is seeking to instill a sense of reverence and an encouragement to the Christians to listen to authority. It seems to be underscoring this idea that for the church to work, we have to have order, and the well-being of the community is dependent upon this idea that there are people in charge. Now, it doesn't talk about bishops here. But I think that's one of the things that's happening as the century turns and we're coming into the second century in Christianity. There's this division within Christianity. We know this because we have some of the letters of some of the early bishops as they're writing to each other, trying to figure out how do we keep everybody together? And they're working to establish orthodoxy or right thinking. And one of the ways that they encourage the saints to have orthodoxy is to listen to the counsel of the bishops. There were those that didn't want to listen to the bishops. There were many different versions of Christianity. There were the Marcionites and the, and the Ebionites and the Antinomians. Now, we know there were the apostles until they were killed. And we know that there were local ecclesiastical leaders, and that was the structure whereby they tried to hold things together in their first few centuries. In other words, what I'm saying here is that Hebrews is another example of the ongoing apostasy. Sometimes we talk about the apostles died and then the apostasy happened, but what I'm trying to emphasize is that the apostasy is happening in real time while the apostles are alive, and we see bits of this as we go through these epistles. So as we come to the end of this epistle, remember the overall theme is don't let go and go back to the lesser. You're letting go of Jesus, who is so much better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than anything else. And in the midst of the division that's happening and will continue, don't let go of the higher. And so we leave you with that invitation to let go of all things celestial and everything terrestrial and come into the celestial room where you'll find a Savior who is willing to make you perfect and stand in front of you, in front of the Father, and get you into his presence. And remember that Jesus is better than living a life without him. So with that, we thank you for listening. Next week's Come Follow Me is the General Epistle of James. Now, before we go, I just want to remind you that we've been working on some new video content on our YouTube channel that you might enjoy. Just know that Bryce and I will continue to release our regular podcast every week. So these new videos are in addition to our podcasts and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. 
So we hope that you'll check them out on our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. We'll leave a link in the description. And with that, make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.